First on film and entertainment, a big film to start conversation with this morning. Jackie Hamilton joins us. Peter Krauss, Greg King. Nice to have you all on board. So let's go with Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, and a movie that is three hours and 26 minutes in duration. My understanding is that was originally going to be six hours. I'm not sure if that's true or whether that's just somebody pulling my leg, but there we go. MA rated. It's based on fact. It's a Western drama set in Oklahoma in the 1920s. Looks at the serial murder of oil-rich Native Americans. So, after arriving home from the First World War, a character called Ernest Burkhart, played by DiCaprio, moves in with his wealthy cattle rancher uncle, whose name is William King Hale, known as King, played by De Niro. He begins working as a driver for King, and his older brother, I'm talking about Ernest's older brother, Brian, played by Scott Shepard, is already on King's payroll. And the man, King, rules the roost in this neck of the woods. He makes out that he's considerate, that he's caring, he's generous to the American Indians from the Osage Nation. But what he's really interested in is the untold wealth that sits within the community. They became some of the richest people in the world overnight in 1894 after oil was discovered on their land. King is constantly manoeuvring to get his grubby paws on a fortune. In the first instance, that involves Ernest marrying into the family of a native. Everything falls into King's hands as Ernest finds himself chauffeuring Molly, Lily Gladstone, and the pair takes a shine to each other. When the inevitable happens, the two get hitched. King's nefarious plans are cemented. Readily manipulating Ernest, and with the latter being on side, King impresses upon him that Molly, her sisters, and mother are not long for this world. Their life expectancy is already shorter than the white man's, and King sees to it that when they won't die quickly enough of natural causes, he hastens their demise. Truth be told that although Ernest loves his wife, who suffers from diabetes, he gets deeper and deeper into the mire, aiding his uncle's plans to secure rich pickings. It's based on the book Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Grand, screenplay by Eric Roth and directed by Martin Scorsese. Off the top, do any of you know how many movies Scorsese has made with either of the two stars? I know one of them is seven. But I'm not I think sure. Five with DiCaprio. Five with DiCaprio. I thought it was. I thought it was more like seven. Okay, maybe maybe somebody can Google while I'm chatting. Anyway, the what what he's crafted, Scorsese, is quite compelling. It's a stretched movie, though. I mean, it didn't need to be the running time that I mentioned, nearly three and a half hours. You could have lost an hour, and it still would have hung together. I, I thought De Niro was at his dominant best. He really is the puppet master, imposing himself on the film from the first scene in which we see him sort of take to take to the grand stage and he shows no let up throughout quite an assured portrayal of a man who believes he can get away with anything and for a large part of the movie he does DiCaprio he's solid he's his reliable acting self he immerses himself in the characterization of a man who knows which way his bread's buttered mind you he deliberately depicts Ernest as 
not the smartest tool in the shed. And his uncle prizes that out of him early on in one of the early scenes, reflected in a number of decisions that uh, the character makes. My only qualm with DiCaprio's performance, though, is what I'd term his over-reliance on a downturned lip and scowl. I reckon less would have been more. He sort of, he reverts to that on far too frequent occasions. I thought Lily Gladstone was really impressive as the quiet, showing quiet restraint. She bring bringing that to her portrayal of this proud Osage woman, and she's nothing if not respectful. Production designed by Jack Fisk, I thought was superb, really feels like an authentic step back into time or in time. And also striking is the cinematography by Rodrigo Prieto. That includes some really stunning visual effects. Uh, one in particular that I can think of is uh, when, when there's a fire. It's a quality production. It brings to life an ugly chapter in American history, which was driven, quite frankly, by one one word, greed. And I should mention the title, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is quite evocative, but you're not quite sure what it all means. It, it, th- those two words, flower moon, are a reference to the first full moon occurs in May in the Northern Her- Hemisphere, and that's when everything's in blue. But the pretty picture doesn't last long because summer is around the corner. The five-year reign of terror in the movie starts in May 1921 with the discovery of the body of a murdered Osage woman called Anna Brown, who happens to be one of Molly's sisters. And the author, David Grant, uses the symbol of the flower-killing moon to represent what's perpetrated upon the Assage at the hands of whites. So this is a movie that started on Thursday and it will come to the Apple TV Plus platform for streaming at some point. I'm not sure quite when. And that's it. Rated MA. What did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon, Jackie? You just saw it last night, didn't you? Yes, I went to a late screening that I might say I was delighted to see was quite packed. A lot of people want to see this film. Um, And uh, there was a lot of commentary as people were leaving. They were chattering and talking, which is always a great thing to see when coming out of a film, Um, which meant people were responding to it. You know, they had reactions. Um, I thought three and a half hours was too long. It Mm. didn't need to be that long. But I think the reason might have been that uh, the, the the game plan was to put it on TV, Apple TV. Yeah, that's where they mentioned six hours was, I heard six hours was going to be divided into two, three hours lots. And that works well at home because you can put it on pause to pop out to the toilet or make a cuppa or pour another glass of wine or whatever. Whereas when you're stuck in the cinema, if you need to do any of those, you miss part of the film, which, which in this case would be pretty devastating. So uh, I can see why he made it that long, uh, but uh, for a cinema screening, it really didn't need to be, and it did start to annoy me because I I think that it, you know, the telling of the story was enough. Um, I thought it, I wondered how much as I was watching it, I wondered how much of it was true, and I've since done some reading and uh, uh, believe that it's pretty close to the truth. Probably my biggest problem was it with the film was De Niro. It was almost a, almost like a vehicle for De Niro. He completely dominates it mm-hmm. in such a way. In his in the personality of De Niro, I'm not talking about the character of King, but in the personality and the look of De Niro, you're looking at Robert De Niro the whole time, and you're aware it's him. Whereas you mentioned DiCaprio's downturned mouth, yeah, I think that was a 
fabulous um, disguise almost. So it's sometimes men have more difficulty disguising themselves into character in film than women do because they can do all sorts of things with hair and makeup that is harder with men. But I thought it actually gave DiCaprio a, a, an extraordinary personality right there on his face, whereas De Niro uh, was, wasn't king so much as De Niro you were watching. Okay, he was masterful. But a lot was, of he was, and to be honest, I, I, I saw past that, and I saw he inhabited the character. And arguably, if you would like to put what you just put as a contention, maybe, maybe King was very De Niro-like. So, I mean, whether he's playing himself or playing a character, to me, he was playing the character. I and and you didn't get frustrated that that downturn lip kept on coming. It, so, it wasn't a downturn lip. It was it was the whole mouth. He, I think he worked quite hard on that. And my guess is because it's not a very natural, you know. He he really managed to get the 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 sides of his mouth in a noisy no end after a while. Oh, I thought it looked fabulous. I thought it was. We're going to agree to disagree on that one, Alex. No, no, you're wrong. That's okay. Yeah, that that's all right. We I expected that. You know, I when I said go along and see this movie. I knew we were going to. So it'll be very interesting to see what the other recalcitrant in this group, Peter, thinks of it, and and the the affectations we've spoken about in a few moments. Okay, what? A, so, did you like it or did you not like it overall? So, yes, I did. I mean, great story. I didn't know any anything about the actual um, uh, story and the truth of this. So, oh, it's fascinating. It was a well, the movie. The movie was. To me, too many characters, a bit too cluttered. I, I lost my way a couple of times. I lost hearing a, a few critical um, uh, um, points of discussion. I think that some of it wasn't quite... It, it, maybe it's worth seeing again from that point of view as it comes together. But, you know, it's a it's a very, very good movie, of course. But um, I wouldn't say love, love, loved it. Very solid. You haven't mentioned Lily Gladstone, who I thought was terrific as the, the wife. Well, what did you think? What extraordinary character she portrayed with this beautiful, calm. Uh, she, she has the most beautiful tonal sound in her voice, yeah, and a calmness in her demeanour. Um, she was very. She she held it together beautifully. Yeah, great. And so so the other now, Mister Difficult, Peter. Good good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> now let's start with the characterizations and your thoughts, and then I'll get Greg's as well. Excellent characterizations. This is a story I didn't know anything about, and this film was very instructive. In fact, I, I felt it was too short at three and a half hours. Oh, I, would have liked, I am not kidding. I would have liked more fleshing out even uh, of the uh, the story and the characters, especially the way the film concludes, which I won't spoil for people. But um, it, it, this is such an incredible story and so uh, emblematic of the way white the white man has ruined indigenous populations. And this is just another example of that. And um, the treatment of the Osage people, which was a bit more subtle than, uh, although some were killed off, but um, a bit more subtle in terms of ingratiating themselves into the wealthy community and then bumping them off. It, it's just a, an incredible situation and and shows so much of uh, of the way white man has treated uh 
uh, Indigenous populations badly. Look at the Australian situation, look at other countries and Canada and so on. Lily Gladstone is absolutely superb in a, a subtly developed, beautiful role. Uh, and I also like to see Jesse Plemons, uh, John Lithgow, and Brendan Fraser, who mm. crop up uh, later in the film. I'm so pleased uh, for Brendan Fraser because obviously he made a huge comeback as a star of uh, that that movie. What was the name of the movie that that he was the uh, Wild? The Wild, yeah. He was just fabulous in yeah. that. And uh, yeah, it, I was only a small role, but still nice. Mm. Exactly. And, and the film also has a surprise appearance at the end, but I won't spoil that for people. Look, this film deals with so many issues and beautifully woven together by um, screenwriter Eric Roth uh, together with Scorsese. It also uh, looks at things like the race riots that happened in Tulsa, the Ku Klux Klan, and the infiltration that they had uh, on uh, non-white communities, the Freemasons, the FBI, uh, and their involvement. Uh, in trying to come to grips with what was going on in this uh, community. And uh, sad to see Robbie Robertson, who uh, died only recently, his music and music score is used very effectively uh, in this film. An absolutely superb standout of a film, Killers of, a, of the Flower Moon, highly recommended. Mm, okay, well, uh, and, and you didn't, you haven't commented on the downturned lip or... The fact that Robert De Niro is playing Robert De Niro, according to Jackie, what, what, what are your thoughts on those? I read that all as character and characterization. I don't fixate on particular little uh, things like that. Okay. What about you, Greg? I haven't seen this one yet. I need to set, set aside three and a half hours of my life, haven't I? You do. Absolutely. Well, okay. So we'll, let's get scores. Uh, we'll, we'll start with, uh, I think, Peter, you'll be the high watermark here. Jackie, I suspect you'll be uh, sort of low watermark and I'll be in the middle. So let's go with you. It's MA rated, as we said, runs for three hours and 26 minutes. Killers, okay. flower moon. Jackie. Yep. Seven and a half out of 10. I'm giving it an eight and a half out of 10. Peter. Ah, uh, and uh, just as an aside, your comment always about film running time. Uh, when you see lots of theatre, especially lots of theatre musicals that run for three, three and a half hours, you never comment on running time there. So I'm really surprised that you you would uh, fixate on that in uh, cinema. That's actually not true because I do see a lot of musical theatre and there is not there is not uh, a lengthy running time for most musical theatre compared to the movies of this length. The, the longest that I've seen was recently, well, in recent times, I should say, is Chess, which ran for three hours, including Interval, which I wasn't terribly troubled by because I thought it was such a wonderful performance. I didn't realise it was that long, and somebody said to me, it depends on the version of Chess that you see. There's been various iterations. But most musical theatre, most uh, that I can, and I've seen a lot of it this year, runs for two and a half hours, including Interval, Right, so in other words, it's two hours ten minutes, or you know, two hours twenty minutes, which means it's two hours. So many, many movies run for two hours. So I reject your recalcitrant remarks. There you go. It's having an interval that makes the difference, Peter. I mean, three and a half hours is a long time to sit unmoving when you don't know if there's a point at which you could duck out. Okay. Yes. Well, yes. Bladders are very important. All right. Well, it's it, 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 well. This conversation is really stooping. Yes. Thank you. Keep going. 
All right, so in terms of my score, Killers of the Flower Moon, at this stage, my film of the year, 10 out of 10. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I expected that. It's it's interesting. I, I suppose I was expecting this to be special, and I was thinking, all right, well, as you know, my film of the year was established a few few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago now, with uh, Oppenheimer, which was the first movie I'd given 10 out of 10 to in probably a decade. I didn't think this was as good as Oppenheimer. Jackie, your view on that? those two as points of comparison? Well, I went to see Oppenheimer a second time because I yes. had thought so much of it the first time and because it was being raved about and because I, I have, well, so to speak, lost the plot with it because it was very complex to me and my poor little brain couldn't keep up with it all. Um, so when I saw it a second time, I liked it much, much more. Maybe I should see this a second time. But yeah. I, it, was, it wasn't as complex as Oppenheimer and it wasn't sort of so far out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I, but yeah. So, so, no, but the question I had was, which do you, oh. think, if it was an Oscar, if these were two, two of the films bidding for an Oscar for best oh, well, film? Would... Because I gave it a higher score. But I asked Peter if you gave it 10 out of 10, did you not have any criticism of it at all? Was there any one thing that you didn't like about it? Not at all. In, in fact, that's why I mentioned that, that I w was hoping it would be even longer because there was just so much uh, of interest in the storyline. No, it's good. You're the one. Thought... Dave might be a, um, you know, a, he might, there might be a director's cut where, you know, or it might be done as a, they might add in film as a six hour and you could see it on TV, Peter. Yeah, I must admit, I thought of that too, Jackie. But I mean, um, Peter, as it stands now, he's the only one on the planet of the 8 billion people who actually wants the film to be extended to something like, what? A what's the longest movie ever made? I think there was one in Sweden that ran for uh, several weeks. So maybe, maybe I should get you to review that on our program, Peter. There's also the Andy Warhol film that runs for 24 hours. Yes, that's. That, I mean, there's a challenge for you. <laughs> <laughs> What's that opera in three parts that uh, goes on forever as well? There's, there's one that, uh, hang on, I'm now going to Google longest film ever made. No, just because it's 24 hours doesn't mean you want to watch it. And I could set my phone video to record and I could have a 24 hour film. So, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Peter. You're not even close. Here we go. There we go. All right. So, the. In your wildest dreams, you would never come up with this running time, okay? It's a Swedish documentary made 11 years ago. It runs for, it's called, I'll give you its name. It's called Logistics, and it's indeed about logistics, obviously. Runs for 857 hours. That's a running time of 35 days and 17 hours. There you go, yes, Peter. There's your challenge. Only his long-suffering mum and dad ever saw it. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Hang on, there's something. I'm just now Googling. There's something on Collider. Um, yeah, it, it, the, the headline, the longest movie of all time will take you th 35 days to watch. How many bathroom breaks are you going to need? Right, there, there you go. <laughs> I don't have one. So, so I, I, I think, well, okay, so... In terms of lengthy movies, I mean, Gone with the Wind was very long, wasn't it? That was nearly four hours, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. There you go. And Lawrence of Arabia, uh, ha, ha, that, 
Uh, is it true that the original Napoleon ran for five and a half hours? So oh, the, the Able Dance, yes, I think it did. Gee whiz, Jackie, you and I'd be struggling there, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously, you know. Look, what what are we even talking about? A short movie like uh, like this this Robert De Niro one? We shouldn't be talking about it at length at all. So you've you, you, you won your argument, Peter. What's three hours and twenty six minutes amongst friends? Right, Greg. Greg, um, just out of interest, where did you put Oppenheimer in the pantheon of movies you've seen this year? Was it the very top or not yet? I gave it a seven. I haven't made up my mind yet because you're still a couple of months ago. Well, seven, seven's now. It's never going to get your top. That's not even going to make your top ten, Greg. For Oppenheim. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we can we can move on. On Jair eighty eight FM, you are listening to Jackie, to Peter, to Gregory, and to myself, Alex. First, first on film and entertainment. Now, I, I wanted to see this because Jackie said you've got to go and see it. You've got to see it. The crime is mine. Which is, I mean, I like French movies. Jackie, you generally have said to me, I don't like French movies. Is that correct? Oh, no, generally French romantic comedies don't tickle my funny bone, no. No, well, okay, The Crime is Mine is an M-rated film. It's 102 minutes, and it's a French comedic crime caper. It, it, it's a scrumptious delight. I actually have to applaud you for commending this to me, Jackie, because usually oh, I... I, I, I you'll listen to me, Alex, so I'm very impressed you yeah, Usually, ah, uh, it's 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 like, you know, I, what's the expression about pulling, drawing pins and or whatever it is? There is an expression, and that comes to mind whenever you're recommending something. I'm thinking, oh no, really? Do I absolutely have to see this? So thankfully, I did listen. I, I found it quite intoxicating from the get go, and it, it really didn't let up. And the two takeaways I, I took from it: crime pays, and equal rights for women are not to be sneezed at. That would what I should have taken out of it, Jackie. <laughs> it's an excellent summation. Right. So we're in in Paris in 1935. Uh, what a great city Paris is. Anyway, Madeleine Verdier, played by Nadia Ter- Terakiewicz, is this struggling, attractive young actress. Can't land a role, and she lives with an unemployed lawyer called Pauline Morleon, played by Rebecca Marder. The the pair, who I might say straight away, even share a bed, are about to be booted out of their apartment because they are months behind on the rent. So with money a major issue, they use the murder of a lecherous ageing film producer whose name is Montferrand, played by Jean-Christophe Christophe Bouvet, to their advantage. And when I say ageing, I think he's only 62. So maybe not that ageing, but but um, he, he probably looks a little bit older than he is. Anyway... Vidiri claims that Montferrand turned her down for a part in a movie and that she shot and killed him in self-defence after he began pawing her. And her motive in confessing is to ignite her acting career because obviously the case will generate a great deal of publicity and she hopes it's all going to be good. Well, pulling the strings, feeding her her lines is her best friend, her roommate, Morleon, the character played by Rebecca Marder. And there's a pompous acting judge eager to see the case brought to court. His name is Gustav Rebusay, played by Fabrice Lucchini. And he's very happy to have the narrative fit the crime. Because having wrapped everything up so neatly and quickly, he can only see his standing in the judiciary grow. Now, more than a passing interest is being shown in Vadiri, the, the budding actor, 
by Rabusay, the um, the acting judge's friend and companion at the time the murder was committed. His name is Fer- Fernand Palmeretti, played by Danny Boone. He is a wealthy architect, he's a master builder, and he's richly benefited from the demise of the film producer. And he's really happy to lend Vidiri a helping hand. Also worth mentioning here is that Vidiri is in love with Andre Bernard, played by Edouard Sulpice, the son of a tyre magnate, and he with her. But that business, the tyre business of the father, is in trouble. And Bernard gambles. Now, he proposes a particular arrangement to his girlfriend, Vidiri, whereby he would marry a rich, plain Jane heiress and Vidiri would become his mistress. Surprise, surprise, Vidiri is none too pleased with that contention. The impending court case, though, is set to change Bernard's resolve. And finally, lots of characters here. In the wake of the legalities, a self-serving, haughty, silent film star with aspirations of grandeur comes out of the woodwork. Odette Chamait is her name, played by Isabelle Huppert, who chews the scenery. She She's looking for a big payday, is desperate to resurrect her career. And it's all of this, The Crime Is Mine, is based on a play by Georges Bear and Louis Benoul, and it's been written and directed by Francois Ozon, who made the great film Swimming Pool. And Philippe Pizzazzo also collaborated on the screenplay. Well, I loved everything about this movie, The Crime Is Mine. Bright, breezy, charmingly preposterous, beautifully scripted and pieced together, twists aplenty, exaggerated affectations adopted by the actors that suit the work really well. Nadia and Rebecca present as this wickedly appealing duo who use their feminine wiles to great effect. They bat their eyelids and do all sorts of other good bits and pieces. Fabrice Lachini revels in the entitlement that his position of power carries and Daddy Boone oozes charisma and confidence. But, well, Isabel Huppert, her sweeping entrance late in the piece is the cherry on top. She presents Chamette as this blowhard, full of bluster, won't stop until she gets what she wants. And I really admired the, the period detail that's intrinsic to the film. The cars, wow. The production design, the set decoration, the costuming, what a delight. And the music by Philippe Rombi adds heart and tension. I couldn't recommend The Crime Is Mine any more highly. Light-hearted and quite bewitching. And seeing you recommended it to me, Jackie, you can start off. Your thought. <laughs> Oh, Alex, I'm going to I'm going to agree with everything you've said, which is uh, why I did recommend it to you. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry to be, disappoint you by agreeing with you. Um, you know everything you said. You know the music, the setting, the era, the people, the characters, the the young women who flounce in and totally steal the show, and you know the men are in the background as um, you know they the the, the Love the exaggeration and the melodrama of it. And I think you made the story sound quite complex, but it's actually not very hard to follow. It, it, it's got a lovely, um, uh, you know, a, a lovely um, sensibility to it as it goes along and kind of twists and turns quite well, a bit. The centrepiece to it. And, and obviously in terms of people wanting to ingratiate themselves to to move up the, the ladder, whether that be the actors or whether that be you know, the lawyer or the the judge so i suppose if you want to break it down you're right that's what it's all about but i i thought i mean not every movie can do what this did which was to bring all the pieces together as seamlessly and that that humorous bent sometimes exaggeration goes over the top and you feel the exaggeration 
here it was intrinsic to the success of the film, wasn't it? It was delightful. And I think it all comes down to the writing of this film. Yes. Uh, the, the dialogue was totally on point. It, was, it all made sense and it was just wonderful to listen to. Mm. Greg, did you see The Cry of His Mind? I haven't seen this one. It's on my to-do list for this weekend. Good stuff. Do see it, Greg. Do see it. Absolutely. I will. And, and, and Peter? Yes, I've seen it. It's, uh, I really enjoy Francois Ozon's films, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned Swimming Pool. He also did Franz, which was a really incredible story, and Eight Women as good examples. Uh, it's, it's also interesting you mentioned that the film is set in Paris in 1935, which it is, except it was mostly shot in Belgium, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Crime is Mine is based on a French play of the 30s, which yes. Hollywood remade uh, a few times in the 30s and the 40s and uh, was the inspiration to some extent for Roxy Hart and uh, Chicago, the uh, mm -hmm. musical based on that. So uh, this sort of uh, uh, idea of a woman accused uh, and uh, what happens to her in terms of uh, 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 the murder that she is supposed to have committed and, uh, and how that plays out, especially seeing uh, Isabelle Huppert uh, later in the film, playing uh, uh, someone like Sarah Bernhardt, who was a, a noted uh, silent film actress at the time. I think all of that works very nicely. It's a, it's a, a good entertainment. It's um, well put together uh, by Ozon and his team. And uh, he really does make uh, enjoyable films, uh, which deal with uh, some, uh, some amusing sort of storylines. So, yes, I like The Crime is Mine. Uh, perhaps not... Uh, Hugely, as as you both did, but uh, what, what didn't you like about it then? No, no, it's not. It doesn't matter of what I didn't like. I I just felt it was uh, a fairly obvious sort of confection that uh, I could see where it was going, especially when Isabel Huppert entered uh, the scene. Uh, but anyway, um, leaving that to one side, it's yeah, it's enjoyable, and uh, certainly uh, recommend people go and see it. Well, I think Jackie, you and I are going to be very similar on this. So what, let's start with you. 102 minutes, M-rated, The Crime is Mine. Your score, please. Eight out of ten. Ah, and I'm giving it an eight and a half out of ten. So, Peter, I'm presuming you're in the seven territory somewhere there. Ah, uh, you can read me like a book. Yes, I gave okay. the film seven out of ten. There we go. There we go. Jaya, 88 FM. Hey, donate to us. Keep us online. 54 bucks a year if you want to become a member. We appreciate your interest, shall we say. But you got programming 24-7. Music, news, information, and hopefully lots of entertainment. What um, we should now turn to is there, there is a film that is going to, well, we, we were shown this week as part of the British Film Festival, uh, and that the British Film Festival starts on the 1st of November. It is my favourite film festival without any question because so many of the movies go on to be launched. Now, a lot of the film festivals are handled by Palace, and they do a terrific job. you got the Jewish International Film Festival, which starts next Monday. And, Peter, I think you and I are going along to the opening night there. But the British one, uh, there, there is so much good good material there. Uh, the, the old oak is... Look, Ken Loach and Paul Laverty, they've made a lot of movies together. In fact, I think the old oak's their 15th collaboration, if I'm not mistaken. And Xenophobia is at the heart of this one. The, the title, by the way which you might think is a, is about a tree. It's actually the name of a pub in the northeast of England, which is a popular watering hole that's seen better days. And it's operated by 
a down-to-earth publican called T.J. Ballantyne, a role filled by Dave Turner. I, I really like him, actually. I, I think he's a terrific actor. He's struggling to make ends meet, like most residents of what is an impoverished town. And it's never recovered since the demise of the mining industry, which really was uh, its its uh, its central focus. And we're talking about the year 2016, 2016. There's an influx of Syrian refugees that is not welcomed. It, it adds pressure and, and changes the dynamic of the town. One of these refugees is a respectful young woman called Yara, played by Ebla Mari. Speaks very, very good English, and she learned the language while volunteering to help foreign nurses as she and her family lived in a refugee camp for a couple of years after escaping her war-torn nation. And her father, who was a tailor, was taken by the state-sponsored militia. He's now missing, presumed dead. Now, Yara's most prized possession is the camera that her dad gave her. And upon exiting the bus on her arrival in her home, new home in the northeast of England, it's taken. It's toyed with and it's broken by an outspoken local, upset that she'd taken a photo of him from the bus window. And that sets in train a chain of events that sees this kind-hearted but determined Yarra interact with and befriend TJ, TJ Ballantyne, the Dave Turner character, and eventually befriending many others in the town. And in doing so, TJ cops the ire of many of the bar's regulars, right? So he he's the proprietor, he's the guy who runs the place, but uh, the bar's regulars don't like what he's, he's doing by befriending the Syrians and TJ in particular. And amongst those not liking it is a mate that he went to school with. And the fallout bubbles over after TJ agrees to fix up the pub shabby back room, which has laid dormant for 20 years. And the purpose of doing that is to facilitate integration, but it comes at a cost. And as the movie unfolds, we find out more about Yara's family and TJ's own personal struggles. Look, you think about Ken Loach, gritty working class films. That's what he makes. And so it is with The Old Oak. It's a movie that tugs at the heartstrings. It presents both hardship and hope. I thought the key characters were very, very well established. And Dave Turner's a natural uh, now who had to, we, he's basically had to turn his life around, but nearly did not make it. Although, ad- admittedly, I did struggle to reconcile that narrative. The idea that he was a really bad guy who's is now become a good guy in simple terms. Uh, I mean, that it, it just didn't correlate with the empathetic soul that we actually see on the screen. And Ebla Mari, too, she, she makes this really favourable impression as the measured Syrian who wants the best for everyone. Hers is a rather low-key portrayal of a woman who's experienced a great deal of pain and heartbreak. I should also mention Claire Rogerson. She impresses as the enthusiastic Laura who works with Yara and TJ to propagate the Syrians' integration into the community. Look, I appreciated and I was moved by the old oak, but I could feel myself being manipulated. And I think, what were the words you used uh, with, uh, with, with that film that we've just spoken about, Peter? Uh, that, that that feeling of you know you know you're being being turned one way or the other. I could foretell the chess pieces being shifted for dramatic effect in the old age, and I wish I couldn't. Mind you, don't take that to mean I I question the film's intent or the focus on the evocative subject matter, which I applaud. It, it remains emotionally wrought throughout. It carries a message of the benefits of solidarity and integration. Very solid messages, no question about that. It will play as part of the British Film Festival 
I dare say it's going to get a, a cinematic release thereafter, but see it at the British Film Festival, which starts on the 1st of November. What did you... Now, Greg, have you seen this? Yes, the I was old... there on... Oh, you were too. You were behind me. Yeah. Did you like it or not? Yes, I liked it. Um, it's a typical Ken Loach film, a bit gritty, a bit grim, um, and sort of looking at the lives of the down and out and working class people in Britain. Um, accents so thick it doesn't occasionally need the subtitles um, there. But I like the lead character. I thought he, he was well-rounded there. And as you said, you know, a bit of a conflict between him and the rest of the townsfolk there. And I like the young Syrian girl as well. I thought she brought an innocence in it to the role there. Um, and the usual collaboration between Ken Loach and Paul Laverty there, you get the sense that sometimes the dialogue is improvised on the set there because... Um, the way it comes across, unfortunately, the natural there. Beautifully shot as well by his regular cinematographer there. And you get a great sense of place and the location and some of the town's history there. Um, so, yeah, I liked it. Um, yeah, it's not as downbeat as some of um, Ken Loach's films, though. It, it does have a bit of a humanity to it. It and does, it doesn't it? Yeah, funny. I noticed that too, Greg. I thought that was interesting because often it's very, very dour, but mm. then it were up moments and, uh, you know, the, the idea of hope there, which... Uh, which he doesn't always introduce. Yeah, yeah quite right. Mm. What about you, Peter? Did you like the old oak? Very much so. I, I, I'm a great uh, fan of uh, Ken Loach's films. I mean, going all the way back to Kez, which was such an important yeah, yeah, that's film. Well, I've been reading Kez at school. Yeah, so do I, Greg. That's what I, I, my, my reaction when Peter said that is, gee, how long ago was that? Wow. You know. uh, eight, 1852. <laughs> <laughs> By then you're an old man, weren't you, Peter? So you know. You well, know. I was there at the launch. That's right. Now, anyway, uh, so... sorry, the point, sorry, the word, you mean the beginning when Adam and Eve were were kids, <laughs> when they were a figment of their fig leaf. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's yeah. move back to Ken Loach. Kez, uh, uh, I, Daniel Blake, more recently, Land yeah. and Freedom. He's very much a strong socialistic filmmaker as well as humanistic, and. Um, his stories, yes, they may have a fairly predictable arc insofar as they look at the down and out or the working class and uh, how they are uh, enmeshed in difficult circumstances, but there's always a glimmer of hope, and uh, certainly that comes through in, in The Old Oak, and Ken Loach at 87 has certainly made a uh, a really impressive uh, film which also looks at cultural integration and uh, understanding. Uh, I think it's a very effective film. And uh, did you have any reservations? Like, I mean, I, I expressed no. already none. Okay, no. So again, it's all right. You can be wrong too. Uh, what, what about <laughs> what about you, Jackie? Did, did you this be Ken Loach's last film, um, Peter? Yeah, uh, that was going to be, but whether possibly, possibly. Well, uh, by the way, talking about uh, people who are a little bit older making movies, uh, why haven't you made one at three thousand two hundred and twenty-three? Peter? No, sorry, that wasn't my question. My question was uh, with regards to Clint Eastwood. Is he still, he'd be well into his 90s now, is he still making movies? Yes. Hmm, okay. So age age is uh, not a barrier, which I'm delighted to hear. Uh, Jackie, uh, surely you've got reservations about the old oak. Well, instead of giving any reservations, I'll let you know that uh, my... um, uh, the friend that I took along to this particular screening and I both shed a tear m- on more than one occasion through this film. Because and- you didn't see me at the film, is that right? 
I saw you and argued with you the minute you finished. Um, indeed, indeed, you are an argumentative soul, aren't you? Yeah, keep going. I, I, I think if I have an emotional response to a film that much, um, it's a great film. You know, it really. I watch like the documentary it. about watch the documentary about the two thousand Essendon Premiership. That'll bring a tear to your eye. God. <laughs> Thank you. There, what, there does, I haven't mentioned football once. Now I have. It's a good opportunity. Just did. Yeah. All right. Um, Keep going. I like the characters in this. I like the story. I like the compassion. I like the human, the the humanity of it. I like. I I didn't have a problem at all with uh, TJ, who was a had reason to be a depressed man, and found something that sparked life back into him. And he found the reason. Hang on, you say he had reason to. It was only the explanation given that gave him reason to. Surely, right? I mean, it was a convenient explanation, wasn't it? What do you mean? I'm not following you at all. You you said he had reason, right? I'm questioning the reason. I'm basically saying, okay, that was introduced later in the piece, much later in the piece, and it was almost like a throwaway line. And then all of a sudden, you know, that that kind of, yeah, I just... I just, No, 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 no. You're being very obtuse, and I don't need to follow you down that path at all. What I'm saying is TJ, the publican of the old oak, had his issues and concerns, had been through extremely bad times financially and emotionally and everything. The whole town was downbeat. It was a terrible time. And the arrival um, of the Syrians, for some in their town, it was cause for, we saw all the points of view, cause for anger, depression, There was, you know, the economy, they were cruel, there was bullying, it was all that side of it. But TJ took the other side of it. And he, be, he showed compassion and I liked the way that that was developed and the way that it changed. Um, it allowed him to be a better man. Uh, and, of course, there was a lot more to the film as well, but that's the very human side of the main characters there. And, of course, Yara, the girl, was um, very even-tempered and calm and beautifully um, characterised by the actress, and there was not a lot for me to not like about this film. Wow. And I had a good cry as well. Well, I can give you a good cry anytime you want. Just sort of, you know, give, give me a call and I'll, I'll give you reason to cry. Is that is that what I should be saying? You know, the, the emotional resonance of football does it to me every time. Okay, having said that, we, we, we have talked about the British Film Festival. What's the um what's the opening night film? I've gone gone blank for a moment, uh, Peter. Can you help out? The... Um, uh, Yes, it's a, it's about uh, the uh, man who saved a number of Jewish children. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Uh, one life, I think. One life. Well done. Yeah, well done. So that look, this is it's Cunard is the sponsor. If you get online, BritishFilmFestival.com.au, and it runs from the first of November to I believe the twenty ninth. I mean, it's across Australia, so there are different dates in in different cities. But you can buy tickets now. You can have a look at all the movies and. Uh, yeah, one it is called One Life, and and that, that's um uh, Wednesday the first of November. But the, you'll have the opportunity to see it um sort of throughout the festival, I dare say, as well. Will you not? I'm just having a look. Yes, you will. The other thing I was going to say, uh, there's a an important movie called Golda, which is also uh, a, a part of the Jewish International Film Festival, is it not, Peter? 
So no, that's... it's not. No, oh, no, that that was a one-off screening. It's actually it belongs to Palace uh, at Transmission Films. It uh, uh, Eddie just arranged a one-off screening uh, for uh, well, the, well, the launch I, of the I, GIF. Okay, well, I I'm certainly going to be looking out for that. That's um, it's it's already at the Como. You can see it at four o'clock on the second November if you're interested in doing so. All right, so look, I'm going to give you the, the low mark on, on the old oak, no doubt, and then we'll build up, up from there. I'll give it a six and a half out of 10. Uh, Greg, what about you? Seven and a half to eight. Okay, well, all right. Uh, then we will go with uh, Peter. Yeah, I gave it eight out of 10, really liked it. Mm-hmm. And Jackie? Well, I gave it eight out of a 10 and another half a point for making me cry, so that's eight and a half out of 10. I'm sorry. Sorry, there's a crying scale is there now. <laughs> it's a crying game. It, yeah, I've got to say it, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> sorry. Hang on, hang on. I, I, I used to, Greg, do you remember many years ago when you and I, you know, we've been speaking on here for, for donkey's years, we used to have clock time or was that with somebody else? I used to sort of give, give scores for different elements of a movie and if I had to look at my timepiece, that was a bad thing, right? So with a movie such as that which Peter wants, which goes for 35 days, I would have looked at my timepiece a lot, right? So it would have been marked down on that level and then you sort of meshed all of these scores to get a, a total score. Maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Your runtime of a film shouldn't matter. It's whether the film is of good quality or not that is important. No, no, no. no. It wasn't, it, but, but no, it wasn't about that, Greg. If it's a movie of 35 days that's totally compelling, I wouldn't be looking at my timepiece, so it would get a high mark. But if I did if I did need to glance at my watch or my whatever it may be that tells me the time, that's a you know it's a mark against the film. And the more you do it, so it wasn't about the running time; it was merely about whether it sustained the running time. Last night, Killers of the whatever Rotten Tomatoes, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I was exactly on your on the same page with you on that. And the first time I looked at the time was. An hour forty-five in. Oh wow! Okay, I did twice again after that. Hmm. Well, okay. Now look, we were going to do another movie today, which actually opens next week. So I think we'll hold it to next week. I wanted to talk about, but just just raise this issue with well, all of you. Have Have any of you, Jackie? I'll start with you because you do see some theatre. Have you seen immersive theatre? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, do you know what it is or not really? And I don't... In that, I think okay. so. I think so but... Okay, well, that, because there's terms immersive and interactive. So let me just sort of start there. And Greg, I think you said to me last week you haven't seen immersive theatre either, have you? Uh, no, I haven't immersed myself in that genre. No, and, and Peter, you and theatre are like uh, oil and water, right? <laughs> that, so, you know, Sorry, Correct. oil, water and football um, or sport, right? Or... It, <sighs> Other than darkened, darkened uh, film, film uh, sort of situation. Um, all right, so immersive theatre is where you're basically part of the action, but you're not interacting with the audience, with the uh, characters, right? So uh, you're you're you sort of you're, you're part of the action, and you can often follow different threads, which is what I'm about to talk about with Hour of the Wolf at the at Malthouse Theatre which officially opened last night. Now, so that's that. And then there's interactive. And I mentioned that there's something going on at the Austral in Collingwood, which is an old picture theatre as well as an old theatre, and uh, a skating rink as well. And 
Love Lust Lost, which is going on, I think, for another week, unless it's been extended. So that is both immersive and interactive. Hour of the Wolf is simply immersive. And what an uplifting experience it really was. 65 minutes of intriguing immersive theatre, 12 characters interacting with a, across a dozen rooms, which are arranged as a labyrinth within one of the theatres at Malthouse called the Maryland, and the Maryland Theatre and also the Dock. Now, as patrons, we can choose to, well, patrons can choose to wander from room to room at will, follow one or more performers or a combination thereof. And we're in a small town called Hope Hill, population 2,781. And yes, Greg, I counted all of them. No, I didn't. So an ugly incident took place in Hope Hill in 1862, from which folklore sprung. And concerns a woman known as Mrs. Wolf. And when you think about the title Hour of the Wolf, you're actually thinking of an animal, but there we go. A woman known as Mrs. Wolf, who takes things... That's what she does, including children, in the middle of the night on one fateful day of the year. To be more specific, between 3 and 4 a.m., the very time of Mrs. Wolf's untimely demise at the hands of the townsfolk. And each year, there's a sense of unease, a portent of doom during that hour on this day. Hope Hill becomes a cauldron of discontent and unease. And the events of Hour of the Wolf involve locals and out-of-towners in several locations. Now, I speak of a karaoke bar, at the site of a car crash, in a hospital waiting room, at a church, in a bedroom, at a convenience store, at a party house, and in a laundromat. And there are also three rooms I didn't get to in the 65 minutes, a pottery studio amongst them, the clock tower, and a space referred to as the Never. And there is fear. There is bloodshed. There is death. So a karaoke singer takes a shock decision to marry and move away. A father in need of work agrees to peddle drugs to make money. A filmmaker sacks two actors who won't follow her instructions. The long-standing girlfriend of one of them, who believes she's pregnant, kisses another man. A newcomer to town is hiding a dark secret. And a pottery maker has the inside story on the town's mysterious goings-on. They're just some of the narrative threads that run through Hour of the Wolf, which I found intense and thoroughly involving. It's been wonderfully pieced together by the writer and co-creator, Keziah Warner, and the director and fellow creator, Matthew Luton. Fertile imagination and thrills are the name of the game. The pair deliver in spades. They're aided by a troupe of dedicated and enthusiastic actors, who play their respective roles with a great deal of passion and conviction. In fact, I couldn't get enough of the production. I did not want it to end. It's like you, Peter, wanting Killers of the Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon to be a, a film that runs forever. Now, not forever so much, but I'm definitely one. I'm up for a repeat visit to Hour of the Wolf because you can't see and learn about everything in one pass. And the settings feel real, that they've got an authenticity about them. The set designer, Anna Accordingly, who I've praised before, she's really good at her job, has done a mighty fine job here arranging all the necessary props. And you know, that's there's lots of them. The costuming, the lighting, the sound, the voiceover that punctuate the work lend weight to the theatrics. And the clock moves from 3 to 4 a.m. three times during each show, and then you start over at 3 a.m. in a different setting. I, I really like that. Bravo to, to those involved. Uh, 
it ticks, right? Ticks, clock, thank you. Pun fully intended. All the right boxes. I walked away feeling buoyed by what I'd just seen, and surely that speaks volumes about its impact. It is playing at Maryland Theatre at Malthouse. It's got a really good season till the 3rd of December, and I would urge you to go along and see it. I, I, it's interesting. I'd written my review, talked to a few people uh, after I saw it uh, last night, and the interesting thing to me is that it got a few bad reviews, and I, I, to- I totally disagree with these miscreants. I've got no idea whether they saw the same show as I did. No, they're entitled to their opinion, but they're wrong too, just like Jackie and Peter often are. Is that right, Peter? And Jackie? Yes. I disagree. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, sorry. Yeah, so th- look, that was great. And the, the I saw another show that really, it, it's fantastic when you see so many good shows that blow you away. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that next week because we're, fast running out of time today um and this is a good description of um some of your views peter the name of this show now can you imagine i'm asking you to sort of channel me at this point do you know the word that i'm going to use in terms of some of your thought processes to do with some of the movies that you find are works of of, of sheer genius and i think are absolute crud um the, the word that comes to mind is flaky and the the name of the play that i wanted to talk about which I will next week, is called Flake. Isn't that appropriate? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually thinking that, you know, what what your lawyer, Sue Grabbit and Run, will be on the number. Is that right? Something like that. I'm on speed dial now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, Flake is a world premiere production. It's part of Inc., the Inc. program, which basically facilitates or does facilitate new Australian work. It's a great, it's brilliantly written. I mean, I, Jackie, you would love the writing. So would you, Greg. I really admire the way that it's done. And even you, Peter, might might appreciate it, although you'll never set foot in the theatre. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on a lost cause in that regard. But um, please do go along and see Flake at the, at the uh, Red Stitch Theatre in St Kilda as well. Great production. I'll talk more about it next week. And we have reached the end. We, we've we've come from the zenith and we've, we've we've fallen. So Peter, thank you so much for your participation. Really appreciate it. Jacqueline Hamilton, uh, cry a bit more for us, will you, next week? I'll and, cry to a river, Alex. Yeah, that's what I'm wanting. There you go, Greg. You're you're the dad joker. Have you got one to leave us with or not? No. No. It's all gone. It's all gone. It's all gone to pot, hasn't it? Folks, thank you very much for being part of the program and we'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment.